You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring the show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is thriving with ocean life above and below the surface. There's a couple milestones today. Today is my 85th live program on KWMR. I've been doing this show since 1996, so I really appreciate KWMR for providing a platform to bring ocean content to Point Ray Station. Today we're talking about a snail. This isn't just a snail that fits on your fingertip, though. This is a snail that grows to over 10 inches wide, has a beautiful shell on the inside, and its flesh is a highly prized delicacy. We're talking about abalone. The Sonoma-Mendocino coast is a place like no other in terms of coastline, dramatic vistas, and kelp. A good part of the local economy is based on tourism, of people coming to the coast to enjoy the beauty and riches of the ocean. The pursuit of the highly prized red abalone, though, is not for the weak. One has to wear a thick wetsuit, brave cold and often rough and not-so-clear waters, and rely on their own breath to dive down to get them. My guest today is Sonoma Coast resident Jack Likens, who has been actively involved in abalone diving for over 50 years. Jack dove the Channel Islands from 1960 to around 1980. He started diving the North Coast in 1990 and relocated to Gualala in 1999 after retiring from Mattel Toy Company to be closer to abalone diving. Today, he is still a frequent diver and manages, manages to get in the water weekly, weather permitting, and he's been very involved and concerned about the future of abalone in California and has written articles, been featured in films, and is a local advocate for preserving the abalone population. So within Jack's lifetime of diving in the ocean, Jack has seen a lot of change. So Jack, very happy to welcome you to KWMR. You're live on the air. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. So let's just start with some basic natural history to help folks get their ideas around what abalone are all about. How many of species of abalone live in California waters? There are seven or eight, depending on how you measure them. Some people think one of the species is just a, a subspecies. But um, here on the North Coast, uh, we have the red abalone, which is the largest in the world by quite a bit. Abalone um, do exist in almost every ocean of the world in different places and range in size from almost microscopic to, like you said in your introduction, uh, well over 10 inches in diameter. The world record is 12 and 5 sixteenths. Wow. Now, I was enjoying reading about your history of diving, and can you tell us about the first time you dove for abalone? What was your experience like? What was the scene for abalone diving at the time? 
That was interesting because actually the first time I did that was at Catalina Island in the 60s. Um, and a friend of mine in high school took me to Catalina, where his dad had worked in, in the uh, rock quarry there. And he'd been diving since he was even younger than that. And uh, tried to get my friend and I into interested in diving with him. So he, he went down in about eight feet of water, looked under a shelf, and saw all these abalone and said, okay, here they are, come down and get one. I, I dove down and looked at them, and I was afraid to go underneath that shelf, and I was afraid of what I would put my hand into or whatever was down there. At that time, I was um, new, and as is usual with people who first start, a little afraid of the ocean. And were abalone extremely abundant at the time, and what species were you hoping to catch? Oh, yeah, they were. Um, probably even more so than we have now on the north coast. But the species there at Catalina were the greens and the pinks and the uh, blacks, which which I do for. There are also other species there, but those were the uh, bigger ones. And by bigger, I mean I think the world record green abalone is just over 10 inches. The world record pink is probably just around 9 inches and the black is probably around eight inches or so. They, they don't get nearly as big as the red abalone we have here on the north coast. So they were commercially available um, up till 1997 down in Southern California, in Northern California. Is that true? Uh, yes, from San Francisco south until 1997, uh, commercial abalone fishing was legal. And as, as well as recreational as well. But can you describe the history leading up to this closure? I mean, you were a diver in the 60s, and 30-something years later, this closure happens. Can you talk a little bit about what led up to that? Well, there were a lot of contentious meetings uh, trying to decide what to do about the obvious lack of abalone. Um, the, the recreational guys blamed the commercial guys, the commercial guys blame the otters and the recreational guys, and the environmentalists, the marine mammal people, you know, blame the commercial and recreational divers. There, at that point in time, most of the um, data that was available was uh, pretty much strictly for commercial diving. They had to report their catches. And during those peak years in the 70s, I think, um, Commercial catches were around 5 million pounds a year, dropped off to, uh, by the end of the 80s, something around 215,000 pounds. So there was a significant die-off and it, or, or catch, and it was a combination of all of those things. Uh, maybe even the otter being one of the bigger uh, culprits here, which was relatively unstudied at the time, the effect the otters had on the uh, shelf fisheries. So one of the things that you wrote about in an article for California Diver was that this closure may be a useful tool for helping to recover this southern abalone fisher, but fishery, but not necessarily good for managing the existing recreational fishery in northern California. Can you describe why? You're talking about the abalone recovery and management plan, we call it the ARMP. 
Yes. And that's the uh, uh, legal description of how the California abalone are to be managed uh, going forward. And um, there are, and I think even the uh, California Department of Fish and Wildlife have realized now at this point there are uh, problems with that document. And it always was supposed to be adjusted as time goes along. At this point in time, um, the red abalone fishery uh, the recreational fishery in uh, Northern California is the only existing fishery. Only red abalones are allowed to be taken. And uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife in California is in the process of evaluating whether the red abalone should be removed from the ARMP and placed into a fisheries management plan. Now, what that really means to me is it's, it's another opportunity to be involved in the management of the abalone species, or I shouldn't say species, I should say fishery, and fix some of the problems uh, that existed in the ARMP. Um, Southern California still has not recovered to a stage where the department feels like it can be open to either recreational or commercial fishery. But Northern California has always been open to recreational fishing. And the difference, um, the big difference has been that there has never been any commercial fishing except for a couple years and during the war in Northern California. And uh, that no scuba is allowed for taking abalone in Northern California. Uh, no underwater breathing apparatus, in other words. Um, in Southern California, most all divers, including commercial divers, use a self-contained air to uh, pick the abalone. It's allowed them to go deeper, stay longer, uh, a lot of things. So uh, that was one of, has always been one of the big differences between the North and the South. Do you feel, as a diver, that a fishery management plan for the recreational fishery on the North Coast is a better way to go? Well, it depends on what comes out of it. Um, and like I said, we're in the process right now of of, uh, of redetermining, you know, how it will be managed. And, of course, I have some pretty um, personal um, thoughts on how that should be done, but then there's all kinds of other factions involved in this process that also have their ideas about what should be done, including the Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife, uh, biologists, um, marine mammal groups, and now it seems that even... Um, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, is going to be somewhat involved because they're going to put, uh, expand the Cordell Blank and the uh, Gulf of the Farallons marine sanctuaries all the way up to Point Arena, which is uh, quite a ways north. It takes in all of Sonoma County and a, a good chunk of Mendocino County. Right. So it sounds like you have a lot of concern about sea otters. And historically, 
on the coast up there. There were sea otters, and then there was a Russian settlement set up at Fort Ross, and they pretty much decimated the population, and they haven't recovered in that area. But I've and you're reading the, reading the article that you wrote and, and our communication. It sounds like this is a real concern of yours. And I'm curious where um, – I haven't seen a sea otter. I haven't heard about any otters in this area. Is there a thought that they will return to this area? Yes. And that's the fear, of course. Um, it is their historic range. And, you know, in about the mid-1800s, uh, yes, the Russian – uh, otter hunters, along with the uh, local Native Americans, um, pretty much uh, hunted the otters on the north coast to extinction. It was found out later, um, maybe in the early 1900s, that there was a small colony on the central coast of Big Sur, a couple hundred otters, and at that point in time, they were uh, protected by the federal government. Uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife federally manages the sea otters at this point in time. Now, they've grown in, uh, in population from a couple hundred to almost 3,000 uh, animals on the central coast now, and including San Nicolas Island, which is the furthest offshore uh, Channel Island in Southern California, where they tried a project to relocate the otters to the island, and the thinking behind it was to have more than one area for the southern sea otter in case something drastic happened in on the central coast. You'd have the, the San Nicolas Island was also a population of otters. Now that. That uh, relocation plan didn't work very well at first, it seems. Uh, many of the otters died. Uh, some of them swam back to uh, the central coast. But there still were, I, I don't know, in the range of 30 to 60 otters left, something like that, at San Nicolas Island. And in the last three to five years, they've almost doubled in size. So they have taken hold there, and they have um, propagated very well there, even better than on the central coast, where you know, probably what's happening is the otters are growing to such large numbers that they're eating their way out of uh, livelihood. Otters eat about 25% of their body weight every day, and kill much more of that. Most all of that is shellfish. I see. So we may very well have a very big debate coming up in this area in terms of how to sustain this population of their favorite food resource if they ever did come back up here. So I can see the uh, the issue there as it comes potentially in the future. Yeah, at this point, uh, there have only been a few what we call rogue otters that have made it as far north as around Point Arena. But they're there, they're, and they're tagged, so we know they came from the central coast. Um, they haven't established any colonies here yet, probably the major break there being the San Francisco Bay, 
I don't know exactly why they haven't crossed that boundary onto the North Coast, but so far they haven't. And yes, the uh, fishery we have here for abalone uh, is artificial in terms of its size and the number of abalone and the the uh, the mass of the abalones that we have here. And because of the lack of the otters, we do have a fishery. With the otters over time, the fishery would not exist. And, it, and they'd also affect uh, crabs and other uh, shellfish on the North Coast. And that's pretty much been proven by what happened in Alaska when the otters were protected. And they had a thriving shell fishery there and urchin fishery. And um, over time, it's been totally decimated to the point now where the uh, the Alaskan uh, government and the Department of Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife, are considering a bounty for hunter, hunters, hunting otters in that area. Wow, it's so interesting just thinking about the history of time and the balance of predator and prey and food webs and changes in ecosystems and it's very finitely managed now in terms of that sustaining fisheries and predators is a very complex process. We're going to take a short break right here for a little bit, but I'd like to come back and talk about a little bit more of the, the challenges that abalone faced, both with some of the natural things and, and also some of the other human challenges we have with managing abalone. staying with us here on KWMR. My name is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And today I'm talking with Jack Likens, who is a resident on the Sonoma Coast and an avid abalone diver. And Jack, thank you so much for waiting on the line while we talk to the community. Okay, no problem. So I want to go back to some of the other challenges. We were discussing about uh, predators. We were talking about um, over-harvesting, and different management plans. But there have been some other challenges, too, that abalone have faced, more related to the environment. And uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those, like the withering foot syndrome and little events that have happened like that? Well, that's exactly right. Um, it, it, it seems like there are a lot of causes for uh, the reduction in the number of abalone and just, you know, for a little background, abalone are really a, a keystone species in the ocean. They've been around for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And long before man or most ma all mammals and uh, definitely longer than the otters been around. And the problem is that historically the abalone have not been well managed in California. And by that, I, I mean that almost all the regulations uh, on abalone are put in place to, you know, I use the word punish fishermen. And like you said, there are many other causes. Ocean warming definitely is a cause. Um, 
the withering foot syndrome that uh, still exists in the ocean and, and is, uh, is a uh, bacterial uh, disease that seems to thrive better in warmer water than colder water. And one of the reasons the Southern California populations have decreased in numbers compared to the Northern California waters, which are colder. And um, pollution definitely is, has an impact on um, our ocean and the abalone populations. Now, in addition to those um, fluctuations in the ocean with with the with the syndrome and the ocean warming, there are there's a whole serious issue around poaching and people poaching abalone illegally outside of season or outside of the regulations. And how much of an issue is that for the North Coast fishery? I think it's a very big issue, and. Uh the estimate from some of the Department of Fish and Game Wardens here on the North Coast is that poaching accounts for about 100% of the legal take. But, you know, when you go to make a regulation, poachers don't follow regulations. So, again, you end up what I call punishing the legal recreational fishermen by reducing their annual limits, their daily limits, the areas they can fish, things like that, because of all the other elements that cause uh, abalone to have lower populations. And poaching is a very big one, especially when you consider that the total number of abalone taken is, you know, in the neighborhood of 240,000 a year. And if poaching's another 240,000 a year, we're approaching a half a million abalone taken out of off the north coast, most of that coming from Sonoma and Mendoza. County. So that's a lot of abalone. What have been some efforts to help crack down on that? I know Mendocino County has a volunteer group, Mendo or Abwatch, and uh, they have uh, volunteers that do their best to watch out on beaches and access points um, at all hours to keep an eye on who's going in the water. Do you know how that how effective that has been? And is there such an effort on in this on the Sonoma coast? Um, it's it's been somewhat. Effective, and I think it's a, a good thing because the Department of Fish and Wildlife wardens uh, don't have the resources, the money, or the number of people that they need to patrol the whole North Coast. But we do know, I think, where most of it occurs, and I think most of it is done. Um, you know, I wouldn't even call them recreational fishermen. I, I would call them poachers, you know, different than commercial fishermen, different than recreational fishermen. Poachers are, are in a class all themselves. I think, you know, giving more money to enforcement is, to me, some of the low-hanging fruit that we can uh, uh, pick off the tree with not much effort but a little more money. Where do you think the enforcement is most effective? Is it on the water or is it at the beach? Well, I think both places. My guess is probably most of the poaching comes on the water. And I think also, and this there's no real statistics on poaching because if they knew about it, they would you know catch the people and find them. But I think most of the poaching comes from what we call rock picking. And uh, rock picking is... Uh, uh, a method of taking abalone where you don't have to swim. You 
simply wade into the water at low tide and uh, pick the abalone off of the rocks. And what happens typically in that area is there'll be one diver and maybe four or five other people in the group, and one diver will go out in 10 or 15 feet of water at low tide and pick up abalone and uh, shuffle them off to the divers in the shallow water that may not even know how to swim, and uh, they'll put them in their bags, and then they walk up on the beach, and they're all legal because they have their legal sizes, they have their legal numbers, and it's very hard uh, for the wardens to patrol all the places that this kind of an event might happen. You've obviously had a long relationship with the ocean and abalone diving. What is what does abalone mean to you? What is the thing that you treasure most about this unique sport and seafood? Well, I think um, what you said is what I treasure about the sport. For me, it's not even as much about the abalone is it, is it, as it is about the ocean. Um, I probably have dived 20 times this abalone season, which started in April and was closed in July, and I've taken five abalone. So I dive a lot and never even take an abalone, but every time I'm in the water, Jennifer, I see things that I've never seen before. It's so majestic. It's so beautiful. There's so much of it that's unexplored. Estimates are that only 5% of the ocean and it's two-thirds of our our Earth's surface have been explored. And so every time I go in the water, and probably most people, they, they see things that, you know, are unique and never seen before. I, I look at it like my church almost. And to me, no matter whether the federal government calls it a sanctuary or not, it's my sanctuary. I can go there. I, I can forget about life in general, my problems that I'm having and just enjoy nature and the beauty of the ocean uh, by myself and quiet. Wow, that's wonderful. I, I feel the same way underwater. It's a whole nother world to explore, and I haven't spent enough time up on the North Coast being underwater. I used to live on Catalina Island and dove a lot down there, but I've been definitely missing the underwater world up on this part of the, um, part of the world. Yeah, that's true. I, I, like I said, dive Catalina, too, in the southern part of our state, and it's beautiful, too. And the thing about it is the water's warmer, the water's much clearer, uh, not nearly as rough. When you get north of the bay and you get out in the ocean, you really got to pick your days because most days are rough, big surf, dirty water, maybe only three, four, five feet of visibility. And, you know, there's a lot of hazards uh, to diving that if you don't use good judgment, you can really get in trouble. And that causes uh, people to not be able to relax very well when they get in the water, especially people that don't dive very often. So when I get in the water, my first thought is, Calm down, relax, and enjoy the environment. Enjoy what you're seeing. And if you're able to do that, and that's very difficult 
and with that, especially with that experience, you'll start to see wonderful things and things that you've never seen before and experiences that you've never experienced before. I remember, I remember one time I was out diving and the water was fairly clear, probably 15 feet or 20 feet of visibility, which is good for the North Coast. And uh, I see this head looks like coming towards me about the size of a basketball. No, it's not that big. Size of a volleyball mm-hmm. coming at me. And, I, and it's got two big eyes. And I go, what is that? And, and then just before it reaches me, it turns sideways. And believe it or not, it was a baby seal. It was just born. It had the umbilical cord still hanging out of it. And he thought I was his mother because he came to me and he nestled nestled under my armpits and my crotch and wanted to hug right to me and stay right with me. And I was enjoying this so much that I almost didn't notice when his mother came around. And she was just frantic. She was about 10 feet from me and swimming back and forth. So I gently pushed the baby towards the mother, and it turns around and comes right back to me. I guess it didn't see the mother. And then I did it one more time, and uh, it saw the mother, and the mother came in between me and the baby and took the baby by the nap of the neck and took him off, you know, beyond where I could see. I've seen him many, many times, but never seen a baby that's wanted to nestle with me. So there's other big predators up on the coast for humans, um, and it seems every year there's a little bit of an interaction of some sort. With white sharks, have you had experiences with white sharks on the North Coast? And are there certain areas that are to be avoided or certain behaviors that are to be avoided as an abalone diver? It's fairly well known by most divers where the uh, white sharks hang out, but actually they uh, hang out everywhere. And yes, uh, every year there are encounters with white sharks. It's very, very rarely that a person gets killed by a white shark. Uh, Probably one in 10 encounters uh, result in a death or less. But uh, I'm happy to say, knock on wood, that I've never seen one. But that doesn't mean that one's never seen me. (laughs) I was just gonna say that. (laughs) Well, I I do know people and, and I've interviewed them who have been bitten by sharks and live to tell about it. And I know of people who have been killed by sharks. Mm. So it's a very real hazard. And, um, you know, that's just another point of anxiety when a diver, especially a new diver, uh, goes into the ocean up here. Well, we just have a few more minutes left before we go back to our pitching. But uh, you did mention the expansion of the sanctuaries, which is something that's in still a proposal, a process that Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries are proposing to expand up to Point Arena. And I'm not so sure how familiar you are with the, the sanctuaries regulations. They don't manage fisheries. We work mostly with habitats and, and uh, trying to preserve multiple uses with the exceptions of oil and gas. Yeah. And from your knowledge of what you do know about the sanctuaries, um, what role would you encourage the sanctuaries to play in this important issue on the North Coast in preserving this special livelihood, culture, and recreational fishery? I really have mixed feelings about um, 
the federal government managing uh, a marine sanctuary where the state government, especially where the state government is already uh, trying to manage it on the near shore part of the fishery. Yeah, I have absolutely no problem with anyone who wants to try to preserve the health of the ocean. You know, my, my personal belief is we all walked out of the ocean at one point in time. It's the foundation for life on Earth. It controls weather, controls rain, of course. Uh, probably 50% of the oxygen is produced by the uh, ocean and algaes and upwellings. There are a lot of benefits, of course, uh, to man in the big picture of preserving the ocean. Having said that, though, I have to say that I'm concerned about any time the government gets involved unnecessarily or overbearingly in the management of, of the ocean. I don't have very many good experiences with how they manage, um, manage things like that. And now, having said that, you know, as long as the sanctuary was strictly to protect from pollution oil spills, you know, I would say, fine, you know, let's do it. But we know that history has told us, you know, you can look at the Gulf of Mexico, what's happening down there right now. The National Marine uh, Fisheries Service is getting involved in the fisheries, and that's another branch of the federal government who works in conjunction with NOAA. In fact, the guy, a guy at NOAA is the one that got them involved to try to manage the snapper fishery among recreational fisheries. So, like I said, I don't have a big problem as long as, you know, the, the agency that's doing it doesn't overstep its boundaries or cause other, you know, uh, areas of the government to get involved. You know, you've got the federal government, you've got the state government, you've got environmental organizations, you've got recreational fishermen, you've got commercial fishermen. And by the time, and then on top of all that, you have politicians and money that influence decisions made in these so-called sanctuaries. And I'm always afraid when politicians get involved and money gets involved that the wrong decisions are going to be made for the wrong reasons. That's just my personal feeling about it. Thank you for sharing. I do know the National Marine Fisheries Service is the fisheries management agency in the United States in cooperation with the regional fishery management councils. And... uh, Hence, probably their role right now in the Gulf of Mexico and also in our role of fisheries here on the West Coast with the Pacific Fisheries Management Council. And in some fisheries, the state of the state, each state, so state of California for us. But thank you for sharing your perspective on that and the diversity of concerns it can bring for you. Um, We are just towards the end here, but I do want to ask you... um, One of the things that I really liked about your description about abalone and the process of getting abalone is much more beyond abalone itself in terms of the prized catch, but about the experience that you have. And for those folks that are not abalone divers or seafood enthusiasts, what actions do you suggest people like us take 
as a role in ocean conservation overall? Well, I think the first thing is to educate themselves on the issues. And I know 99% of the U.S. population doesn't have time to get involved in most of this kind of stuff, especially something as um, what you'd consider as small as abalone. But uh, I'd say the first thing is to educate yourself. And what happens I think too often is groups with money and politicians get involved and they make decisions based on their where their money comes from, their sponsorship, who's voting for them, whatever. And and most people don't understand it. So it's it's very it's very hard for me to tell somebody who doesn't have the time to understand it, um, you know, you should go out and study this thing because there's a lot of things that people are involved with, you know, especially their own daily lives that they rely on, you know, groups like uh, NOAA particularly, and there are some um, NGO-type groups, non-governmental groups, that do a good job of crossing the boundaries between uh, fishermen and the environment and the humans and the environment. I mean, we can't go overboard one way or another. We can't say, okay, no fishing. I mean, where would our fish come from that we eat? We can't say, uh, okay, just open it up and let everybody fish as much as they want. What would happen to our ocean if that happened? So you've got these individual groups that kind of uh, argue, discuss among themselves, and my my bad feeling about that is most of them do it for the promotion of their own groups and not so much for the betterment of the overall issues. So making sure we are paying attention and getting involved as much as we can within the bandwidth of time that we have. Well, Jack, I appreciate all your perspectives today and our short interview about abalone and sustaining this population up the North Coast, and I appreciate your involvement and willingness to share with us today. You're welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much again. Okay, goodbye. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning in today to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. This show is always the first Monday of every month. And you can catch past episodes by going to cordellbank.noaa.gov or by going to iTunes and looking for the Ocean Currents podcast. Don't know what I'm going to have next month. It's always a little bit flying by the seat every month. But thank you again for tuning in today to KWMR Ocean Currents. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, 
go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.